TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. It has been said that nothing could have reached Benghazi before the lethal mortar attacks. And I suppose what is meant by that is nothing other than the two unarmed drones and the team from Tripoli that deployed itself. What is missing in that analysis, but is pretty simple and straightforward to those of us who have been investigating it for the last two years, is nothing could have reached Benghazi because nothing was ever headed to Benghazi. No U.S. military asset was ever deployed to Benghazi despite the order of the Secretary of Defense at 7 o'clock that night. So Washington had access to real-time information, but yet somehow they thought the fighting had subsided. Washington had access to real-time information, but somehow they thought these fighters were going to evacuate, even without the remains of the ambassador. And without asking, how is that evacuation supposed to be effectuated? How were you supposed to get from the annex to the Benghazi airport? Because it took you almost three hours to get from the airport to the annex. Who is supposed to take you? So those are the decisions being contemplated and discussed in Washington. And this mistaken belief that there was an evacuation that was imminent without asking the pretty fundamental question of how do you, how do you expect us to effectuate, effectuate this evacuation? Washington had access to real-time information, um, but that real-time information did not inform and instruct the decisions made in Washington. After Secretary Panetta ordered assets deployed to help our men, the White House convened a two-hour meeting, and perhaps nothing shows the contrast between what was happening in Benghazi and what was happening in Washington than that two-hour civets White House meeting and the summaries and the readouts that came from it. So it is true, nothing could have reached Glenn Doherty and Ty Woods before they were killed because nothing was ever going toward Glenn Doherty and Ty Woods. And it is worth noting that that statement would be true had the mortar attacks taken place at 7.15 a.m. or 9.15 a.m or even at lunchtime on the 12th, because at the time those two Americans were killed, not a single wheel of a single U.S. military asset had even turned toward Libya. Our report starts with the attack, and there is a section on the post-attack communication between government and the American citizenry. And there is a section on pre-attack decisions made and not made that led to the environment which made our facility vulnerable. Uh, it is always better to be the first committee to investigate, and it is always better to investigate as contemporaneously to an incident or to an event um, as can be done. Um, our committee did not have the luxury of either one of those. We began a year and a half after the incidents, but collectively and individually, all seven of us believed that there were more questions to ask, that there were more answers to acquire, more witnesses to interview, more documents 
to access. And this report validates that belief. There is new information on what happened in Benghazi, and that information should fundamentally change the way you view what happened in Benghazi. And there are recommendations made to make sure it does not happen again. So in conclusion, with respect to my remarks, I want to thank the House of Representatives for giving us the honor of investigating uh, four of our brave, courageous fellow citizens and those that were injured and those that fought so valiantly that night. And I want to thank the six members who are standing up here with me who took on this assignment, not in lieu of their other committee assignments, but in addition thereto, and the women and men on our staff who took on uh, what proved to be uh, an incredibly difficult challenge. Um, and they did so out of a singular motivation of honoring four people whose political ideations none of us know anything about that gave their lives in Benghazi. And lastly, I want to thank my fellow citizens for bearing with our committee um, as we went through the process of uncovering new information and accessing witnesses and documents. Um, I hope my fellow citizens will read this report, uh, not for me, uh, but for uh, those who sacrificed and those nameless, faceless Americans who uncontrovertibly saved other American lives that night. I hope you will read the report with them in mind. And I would hasten to add, you can read this report from pillar to post in less time than our fellow Americans were under attack in Benghazi. So what I'm asking you to do is a fairly small investment, uh, given what others were willing to do on our behalf. And with that, I would recognize the gentleman from Georgia. Thank you, Chairman. And uh, I, too, want to thank the committee members here for uh, participating in this. And it has been a lot of hard work, but I think we need to also recognize the staff uh, that we had. It's not easy working for seven members of Congress, much less uh, one. So I want to pay, uh, thank all of our personal staffs for doing that, but especially the staff with Benghazi. And I think what we've done is we've produced new evidence that will allow the citizens of this country to take all the different pieces that have come out through the other investigations and tie those things all together. One of the problems that we had and the reason this committee was formed is that in the House of Representatives, each committee has a lane. And these lanes were continually getting confused and um, back and forth about who had the authority to interview who. This committee was put together so we could bridge all those gaps and get some new information out. And that's what we've done. And I think that if you will read the report that you will see, as the chairman mentioned, that what was going on in Washington at 10.08 when the secretary made her first comments we had men on the roof at the annex trying to protect their lives and the lives of the others Americans in Benghazi. And so what we've done is in the new facts that we have discovered, and there's many of them, is that we have allowed people to take those new facts with the old facts that it came out. And some of those old facts have been 
reevaluated and, and determined that they were not actually good. And so we've collaborated some of those different things uh, in this report. But to take this new information that we've got and been able to put it together, and if the American people, if our fellow citizens will read this, they're going to come up with their own opinion of what happened. Because there's enough new evidence that I think that, that people will be able to put together for themselves exactly what led up to this attack, what went on during the attack, and then the post-attack when there was so much um, misinformation that was being repeated uh, by this administration. So with that, I'll turn it back over to the chairman. Chairman mentioned that um, before the attack ended, no military assets were headed towards Benghazi. But what did start before the attack was over was the political spin. Uh, at 10.08 that night, with Tyrone Woods still on the roof of the annex fighting for his life, Secretary Clinton issues this statement, the official statement on Benghazi, the official statement of our government that evening. Some have sought to justify this vicious behavior as a response to inflammatory material on the Internet. We know that statement was misleading because an hour later she told her daughter, terrorists killed two of our people today. The next day she tells the Egyptian prime minister, we know the film had nothing to do with it. It was a planned attack, not a protest. And this public-private contrast continues for days, publicly telling the American people it was a video-inspired protest, privately telling the truth that it was a terrorist attack. And maybe the best example is from the 14th. Same day, Mr. Rhodes issues his talking points. But that day, we have Mr. Carney at a press briefing saying this, no information to suggest Benghazi was a pre-planned attack. No information to suggest a pre-planned attack. That same day, State Department official in Libya says this, Benghazi was a well-planned attack. You couldn't have a starker contrast than those two statements. And I think it's important to remember this. Don't forget the context. Libya was supposed to be the, the crowning jewel of the Clinton State Department foreign policy and the Obama administration foreign policy. This was their example of how it works. No boots on the ground, oust the dictator, help the Arab Spring. This was supposed to be how it works. In fact, Jake Sullivan sent an email to um, one of the things we discovered in our investigation where he talks about leadership, stewardship, ownership of this policy from start to finish. This was something Hillary Clinton pushed for and got done. But maybe the better one is the email from Sidney Blumenthal. A few days after Gaddafi has been removed, he sends an email to the secretary and he says, this is a big moment. You should do a press event, even if it's in the driveway of your vacation home. And he, and he finishes the email with this statement. This is a big moment. You are vindicated. Don't wait. Help Cleo now. Cleo, of course, is the goddess of history. So they were committed to this. They were invested in this. This was it. This was how it's supposed to work in their administration and their State Department. And they were so committed, it didn't matter that there were 200 security incidents between the time Blumenthal sent the email and when the terrorist attack happens. It didn't matter that one diplomatic security agent went to Benghazi, did his service, and came back. And when he came back, he said this, it's a suicide mission. Every Quote, everybody there is going to die. It didn't matter that on... August 17th of 2012, three and a half weeks before the attack, Beth Jones sends a memo to Secretary Clinton, and she uses terms. She talks about the uptick in violence in eastern Libya and talks about urgency, lawlessness, widespread violence. They, 
didn't matter because they were committed to this policy. And then it happens. Then it happens. A terrorist attack, and it's a terrorist attack on September 11th, 2012, days before Vice President Biden had said, GM's alive, bin Laden's dead. The president had this narrative that Al-Qaeda's on the run, but now they got a terrorist attack and they have to mislead the American people because it's 56 days before an election, their legacy's on the line, and she has the goddess of history looking over her shoulder. So they mislead the American people. And Mr. Pompeo and I put together a report that we think supplements the good work in the full report. And we, we did that because we felt it's important to know what happened, but also the why. Why did it happen? And you look at every step of this, and I am convinced, just as sure as I'm standing here, it happened because of political concerns this administration had. Why did we stay in Benghazi when almost everyone else was leaving? Why did we stay when the security posture and security position was so dangerous? Why did we mislead the Ameri Why did they mislead the American people? And why did it take so long to get? Why were they talking about making sure military went in in civilian clothes and not not uniforms? In the end, it was political concerns that drove this. The evidence strongly shows that, and that's what we outline in in our report. And I, as the chairman said, I would encourage you all to read both because I think it tells that story. Uh, and that's something that shouldn't happen in a country as great as ours, where political concerns dominate instead of telling people the, the truth in a straightforward fashion. America asks its citizens to go to dangerous places and to do difficult things. These are people who are in the military, who are in the clandestine services, who are diplomats, and they go willingly and they go acknowledging that there is a risk, but the understanding that they carry with them is if they end up in harm's way, historically they have rest assured that their country will do everything it can do to rescue them. That's not a guarantee. And the people that go and they accept these assignments voluntarily, they know that there is an inherent risk, but the understanding is that their nation will move heaven and earth to save them. And that didn't happen. And four people were murdered. That's the scandal of Benghazi. The thing that I take away, and it's been mentioned by previous speakers, is this jarring contrast between the ingenuity and the heroism and the initiative that was taking place on, at, at Benghazi. You can read these communications. You can understand the urgency of what they were dealing with and this overwhelming sense of responsibility to rescue other Americans. Meanwhile, across the ocean, almost a disposition of near fecklessness. The summary of this White House meeting that the chairman mentioned that took place at 7.30, half of the discussion of that meeting, half of the readouts, according to the information that we became privy to, suggested that they were talking about a video. When you read this information, you come to the conclusion, at least I did, that there is concerned, actually more concerned, about whether they're going to be offending the Libyan government by how it is that this rescue is proposed to take place than whether the rescue is actually successful. Marinate in that for a second. 
They're worried about approvals. They're worried about how this will come off. It's very clear that they were very worried previous to that about the notion of pulling back from Benghazi. That's what the testimony shows, because an early exit from Benghazi would have done what? It would have maybe upset the Libyans. That's outrageous. Ambassador Chris Stevens, before he's the ambassador, when he's the envoy, he goes and he lands with no diplomatic immunity. He's on his own. It was a White House policy of no boots on the ground that deprived him of military support, military support that was previously going to accompany him, yet he goes in alone. It's a foreshadowing of things to come. So I think we've got to also look at this notion of responsibility. There's been a lot of discussion, obviously, about Secretary Clinton. At the end of August, we learned, before the attack, Secretary Clinton approved a $20 million grant global security contingency fund to who? To the Libyans. But this was the same State Department that basically stiff-armed one request after another request, cascading requests, cumulative requests, requests for security and more support that were essentially rejected, ignored, put somewhere else. So here's what's in it for us. Here's what we have to recognize. If we are going to ask Americans to put themselves at risk to, in the future, we've got to remedy this, all of us. America needs to have a reputation with people who are serving America that America will follow its end of the bargain. And America, that is, the bureaucrats in Washington, failed this miserably. Fifty-six days. You cannot begin to understand and place all the facts that this committee has worked diligently for a year and a half to present to the American people without understanding that this took place 56 days before a contested political election for President of the United States. Whether it was the failure to put adequate security on the ground, whether it was the dithering while Americans were at risk that night, or whether it is the continued story, in spite of enormous evidence to the contrary, about a YouTube video, it all takes place against a political backdrop. And you don't have to take my word for that. You can read the emails themselves. Before the last mortar falls, they're talking about politics. As they're debating whether or not to send additional security to Libya, the concerns are about the Libyan government, not about the Americans who were on the ground that night. I sit on the Intelligence Committee. I come at this from that perspective. When you read what the intelligence was the night of the attack from Benghazi, Libya, it is uniform and uncontroverted. This was attack by radical Islamic terrorists on an American facility. There was no fog of war. There was no dispute, save for a few stray news reports. The evidence was very clear. Go read what Secretary Clinton herself said. Go read the words from other officials who were on the ground that night, communicating back to the most senior levels of government what had transpired that night. It wasn't about a YouTube video. It wasn't about a bunch of folks out for a walk. And when Secretary Clinton said, what difference does it make? I, we can now, as a result of our work over the last year and a half, tell you exactly what difference it makes. It makes a difference in how you respond to an attack. Whether you think this was just a bunch of folks walking around or a continuous five-phase assault on America that took place in Benghazi, Libya that night. Washington, D.C. somehow viewed this as having ended 
once our men and women were evacuated to the annex in Benghazi. I can assure you, when you read the timeline of events, the men on the ground that night understood this wasn't over. They understood that terror was still upon them, that the risk to their lives continued. And in Washington, D.C., we debated things that had nothing to do with whether or not we had aircraft en route to Benghazi, Libya. That's what difference it makes. You can't begin to exercise the leadership you need to exercise if you don't understand what's happening on the ground. And if you choose to put political expediency and politics ahead of the men and women on the ground for that, you'll have to answer to yourself. I find it morally reprehensible and behavior that if it was your son or your daughter or one of your family members or friends who were on the ground that night and you watched the actions in Washington, D.C., you'd have every right to be disgusted with the response from the senior American leaders. This was a failure at the most senior levels of our government and one that I hope the recommendations this committee presents uh, will help making sure that something like this never happens again. Let me start by saying I am so proud of this report. I am so proud of the work that this committee has done as a whole, the majority. I want to thank our Chairman Gowdy and the rest of the members of this committee for the way in which this investigation uh, was handled and for his leadership as our chairman. This investigation has uncovered a ton of new information, which leads to our much greater understanding about what happened before, during, and after the attack in Benghazi. While our guys were on the ground, taking gunfire and mortar attacks, Washington was moving at a snail's pace. In Washington, the administration was more concerned about diplomatic sensitivities with the Libyans and promoting its policy as successful than it was about the American safety that they sent to Benghazi. At the end of the day, no military assets were ever moving toward Benghazi. The bottom line is that Washington failed to have our guys' backs when they needed it. And from my perspective, this represents a lot of incompetence or indifference or both. As we know now, but for the bravery of a few Americans and the unexpected response of Qaddafi's underground militia, Qaddafi's underground militia, there would have been an even greater loss of life that night. In this case, I believe that the government failed its people and lied to the public in the aftermath. This is unacceptable. And I hope and I know that this report shines light on that and uh, God willing will prevent this from ever happening again. I, too, want to join Martha in thanking our chairman. This has been an incredible task to undertake. And we have worked day in and day out, particularly the staff, to come up with the truth, to bring facts to the American people that we did not know before. I've been particularly focused on issues prior to the attack. And the things that we learned about Benghazi there were many new things that we learned about Benghazi. Things, and we've all admitted, and it's been known for some time, that the security was inadequate. But what we didn't know until this investigation was that the State Department made a conscious decision 
to keep the Benghazi compound off the radar and not provide it the security that it needed. In fact, none of the facilities in Libya met any of the security requirements required by the State Department and required by law. And so when Chris Stevens was sent into Benghazi, he was initially going in with the military. But because of the president's policy of no boots on the ground, at the last minute, that military support was pulled. So we know he didn't have, and the mission didn't have enough security, whether it was people or whether it was physical security tools. But he had a mission, and he had a mission to ensure that, that Benghazi became a permanent post at some point because it was the individuals in Benghazi that had helped lead the mission to topple Gaddafi. And so the administration and the Clinton administration and Secretary of State, they wanted to show Benghazi how important they were. They wanted to show Benghazi that they would be there for them. The Americans would not leave. And we learned during this investigation that it was in October of 2012 that the secretary had a planned trip to Benghazi. She had planned the trip to Libya in order to show the Libyans that the Americans had been there for them and that the Americans under her leadership had led the charge. Well, I will tell you, this was failed American foreign policy. It was failed American foreign policy from the beginning. And that is because we learned, and as the president has even said, the worst thing that we did was not planning for the day after. He's indicated the worst mistake of his presidency was not planning for the day after Gaddafi fell. And so we sent people, American diplomats, to Benghazi, to Libya, to a failed state. And what they were most concerned about at the beginning of going into Libya was making sure that it wasn't a failed state, that it wasn't a terrorist safe haven. And what is it today? It's a terrorist safe haven. ISIS, Al-Qaeda, other militias are there controlling their only natural resources of oil and other places in Libya. It is failed policy. We failed these American people. But I want to close by making sure people realize we said that we were going to try to make sure this didn't happen in the future. So not only did this committee work hard to uncover the facts and to uncover the truth and to put light on the truth, but we have pages of recommendations, many pages of recommendations. And I would encourage you to please look at those recommendations. And just a couple of the recommendations that are so critical is that our government agencies and the leaders of those government agencies had not planned for an attack like this. CIA, Defense Department, State Department had not been prepared and had really no plans in place to execute something like this that could happen on, of all days, September 11th. Even though the president had called a meeting of top government officials asking if we were ready for September 11th. And while leaders said we were ready, we were not ready. We were not prepared to respond. We also learned that political operatives got involved in messaging after this incident occurred. That should not be happening. Internal and public government communications about terrorist attacks should not be taking place. Government should be telling the American people the truth, not trying to put political spin. And so we have many recommendations that we hope 
and that we will encourage our members of Congress as well as administrations to, to look at, to change their policies, to change our laws, to find more funding mechanisms, to make sure that our people are protected in the future. And with that, I yield back to the chairman. Um, if you have questions, uh, please identify uh, yourself, uh, the entity for whom you work, and the member to whom the question um, is directed. <coughs> yes, ma'am. Uh, for you, Mr. Chairman, uh, the Democrats on your committee say that you uh, put out a lot of new details, but that they don't really change the fundamental understanding of what happened. And a lot of the broad themes that you've just discussed have been known for years. So at the end of the day, was this the best use of taxpayer dollars and of your time? It is difficult for me to begin with where I disagree with the uh, foundation of your question. So let me just start at the end of it. Um, who says that stuff was new? Nobody has ever reported that nothing was headed to Benghazi. Nobody has ever reported that not a single wheel was turning towards Libya. God knows nobody's ever reported who actually evacuated our folks. You may have reported that Secretary Clinton was headed back to Libya in October, but you didn't have the corroboration of the emails and you didn't know why she was going back. You didn't know about the $20 million memo. You didn't, first of all, you didn't know about any of the emails from, from Ambassador Stevens. You didn't know about any of the emails from Sidney Blumenthal to whomever he was emailing. Um, you, you didn't know that a single U.S. military asset did not meet a single designated timeline. Think about that for a second. The world's most powerful military did not meet a single solitary self-imposed timeline. So all of that is new. As for the Democrats, uh, color me shocked that they are um, critical of our report. Um, all five of them voted not to form the committee. Uh, they threatened not to participate, and for the most part, they did not. Uh, they have been serial leakers of information, and they missed a really good opportunity. I don't know if you've had a chance to read the report or not, but if you read the report, um, you will see their report mentions her name far more times than our report does. Our report doesn't mention the presumptive Republican nominee for president because he's got nothing to do with Benghazi. So you can direct those questions to Elijah and the rest of them. I'm actually proud of what we found, and I think it's new. Are you saying that the military could have saved those four people if they had done more? Well, clearly you couldn't have saved two of them. They were dead within about 15 minutes of the fire being started. With respect to Glenn Doherty and Ty Woods, there were three assets that made it there. The group from Tripoli that deployed itself, uh, an unarmed drone that was elsewhere and positioned, um, over the facility, and then another unarmed drone um, that uh, the, let's just say the evidence is split on whether or not it could have been armed in time. It got there before the mortar attack. So um, I, I don't know. I'm not going to make a reckless allegation that Ty Woods and Glenn Doherty's lives could have been saved. I, what I am going to tell you is if the mortar had happened at 7.15 or 9.15 or 11.15, the result would have been the same. Nothing was ever coming to Benghazi. So uh, I, I think that's a fundamentally important question to ask is, is you, you, there's an email that sticks out of my mind right now. That's a, that's a takeout from the civics, from the White House meeting, which, by the way, if you know about it, nobody reported on it. So to the Democrats claim that there's no new information. I haven't heard much about this White House meeting until our report was issued. One of the takeouts from that um, uh to our White House meeting, in addition to the five action items on on the video, uh, consider this. 
The video had been out for, for a while. It wasn't new. Cairo had happened, right? Cairo happened before Benghazi. So if you are concerned about this video, you have done absolutely nothing after you receive notice that the video is going to be disseminated. You have done absolutely nothing after Cairo happened. Okay, you're with me? Cairo has happened, and you have changed not one iota your military posture. But yet, but yet, when the attack in Benghazi happens, which is unconnected with the video, 50% of your action items coming out of a civets relate to the video. Mr. Chairman Gowdy, yeah. Hang on a second, Luke. Yes, Chad. When we've talked to members of the committee and, and, and read through the report here, there, have been, you know, there are different lanes that deal with Secretary Clinton, defense, so on and so forth. But there are folks who are going to read this report and say this is just a part to go get Hillary Clinton 130 days before the election and about 27 days before the convention. How do you, regardless of what's in the report, that, that that's going to be the criticism? How do you deflect that when people say this? You know, some of you said, "Well, this demonstrated, uh, you know, incompetence at the highest level." How do you not get that perceived as something that's? Political? Read it for yourself, Chad. R read the report for yourself. If you can read this report and you believe on the last page of the report that it is about one person instead of about four people, then there's nothing I can say that's going to disabuse you of that. That's just what you believe. And there's no amount of facts and no amount of evidence that is going to dissuade you from your previously held conviction. Nancy asked about the Democrats. The Democrats' mantra all along has been that there was no new information. Well, there's undisputably no new information. So now their position is, but it doesn't fundamentally change the way we view Benghazi. Yeah, if, if who evacuated your folks does not fundamentally change the way you view Benghazi. If the fact that no asset was ever headed towards the place that actually had a crisis, this email that we need to, we need to plan in case a crisis emerges, this is what came out of the civets. We need to have a plan in case the crisis expands and a real threat emerges. What the hell was going on in Benghazi? Was that not a real crisis? Was that not a real threat that emerged? So I can't do anything to disabuse what Elijah thinks. He's not my audience. My audience are reasonable, fair-minded Americans who want to know what happened to four of their fellow citizens, and I think they can draw their own conclusion. Yes. Chairman Gabby, you just had Representative Pompeo quoting Hillary Clinton, what difference does it make, saying that you can't be a leader if you don't know what's going on the ground, and then saying that she was morally reprehensible for the leadership that she employed that evening. Well, I'm, I'm going to let him address it. I don't think you'll see any of that in the report. Is it in the report? But he's, pr he's promoting it right and, now. And you know what? You're going to write a story about your takeaway from the report. I, I, I stand on our report. How my fellow citizens, including my committee members, read the report. How you read the report. What story you do on the report. The report. You read the report. You will not see any of those quotes in the report. Mr. Pompeo addressed that. Is, is Hillary Clinton's leadership morally reprehensible? Yes, it is. absolutely. But let me, let me be clear about what we're doing and what we did. I remember the day. None of us volunteered for this assignment, I can assure you. We were all asked to undertake this mission, and the mission was very clear. We sat in a room. I remember it like it was yesterday. And we all looked each other in the eye, and we said, this day, the day we're standing here today will come. And what we want to be able to tell each other is that we worked our, uh, our tails off. I got the polite word out. We worked our tails off to develop every fact we could 
to tell the American people everything we could possibly glean. And we have been obstructed every step along the way in that effort, including by the very Democrats today who are calling us political. Go read these transcripts. Go look who called the witness. Go, go look who asked the questions. This is not the first congressional inquiry in the history of America. I dare you to go find another congressional inquiry where one party behaved in a way that was so deeply obstructive of getting the American people the facts that they needed. With respect to my statements about Secretary Clinton, I believe them in my heart. The reason Representative Jordan and I chose to write a separate report is that we felt that we had delivered an important work in the committee's uh, tally of the information that was available. We also are asking every one of you to go develop your conclusions about what took place. I've been knee-deep in this for over two years. So has Representative Jordan on previous committees as well. And we feel like it's incredibly important to highlight the conclusions that Representative Jordan and I draw about the facts. Read the facts, read the reports. I think you'll see that the conclusions that we draw are real and accurate and fair. Yeah, can I just ask the flip side of that? Um, the flip side of that could be that because you chose not to draw conclusions, does that suggest that you don't have the goods on placing any blame on the administration? That, Dana, Dana, shockingly, that was not what the House asked me to do. Look at the resolution. The resolution doesn't mention Secretary Clinton. Uh, Speaker Boehner nor Speaker Ryan have ever asked me to do anything about 2016 presidential politics. Speaker Boehner asked me to find out what happened to four of our fellow citizens, and I believe that that is what I have done. Uh, you are welcome to read the report. I hope you will. I know you will. If you, at the end of reading that report, can conclude that it is about one person instead of about four people, I will be shocked. Question. Do, do you believe, after doing this for, for two years, spending all of your time and millions of dollars, do you believe that based on this, that the American people should look at this and see that the woman who wants to be president has culpability? I, I, I was with you until the last clause of your statement. I think the American people ought to look at it. They ought to look at it because fellow Americans died and fellow Americans were injured and fellow Americans went to heroic lengths to save other Americans. What conclusions they draw? After reading it, it's up to them. I wrote the report that I think is centered in the facts. I have a background of who, what, when, where. I, I don't have a background in the why. Um, Y'all may have a background in the why. I don't. My job is to report facts. That's what I've done. You can draw whatever conclusions you want to draw. Yes, ma'am. Just going to come over to the side. Who is tapping the brakes on the military response? And my second question is, what did you learn about a covert weapons operation in Benghazi? Uh, well, uh, Catherine, we asked questions about uh, covert uh, weapons operations. Uh, we made some progress. Uh, the lawyers intervened when we were beginning to make a lot of progress. Um, and among the questions I asked the president um, included uh, that one specifically. Um, I have not heard back from him yet. Um, heard from his lawyer, and I'm not holding my breath that I'm going to get an answer to that. I think it was important because the House asked us uh, to examine policies that could have led to the attack. So I think it's important to ask the questions. But that, that's not the focus of our of, of our committee. So and who is tapping the brakes on the military? Well, tapping the brakes is a pejorative phrase, uh, and I, I remember when we. When we uh, said we were going to interview Carter Ham again, I, I remember a lot of raised eyebrows. Why are you going to talk to him again? Um, as if all the right questions had been asked the first time. 
I think the military leaders would tell you exactly what I said in my opening. They believed that an evacuation was imminent. When you question them on why they believed an evacuation was imminent, um, the, the answers do not withstand even the mildest level of scrutiny. You have real live witnesses that can tell you what is going on. If you think the fighting has subsided, why don't you talk to the real live witnesses that are being shot at? If you really believe an evacuation is imminent, at some level, you're going to have to ask, how is that evacuation going to be effectuated? Because you don't have the proper vehicles to take them from the annex to the Benghazi airport. And the only plane you have is one that you privately commissioned. It's not even a U.S. aircraft, and you have no idea whether it's going to hold everybody. So how are you going to evacuate in the midst of a firefight? General Ham did not even know our guys were ambushed from the compound to the annex. He didn't even know about it. So to everyone who wanted to know why we wanted to talk to General Ham again, I thought it'd be nice for General Ham to have access to all the facts because he did not have them the night he made the decisions. Chairman, yes. Some have described this as a perfect storm of bureaucratic inertia. Obviously, your report alleges blame on many levels. But I'm curious, is there one entity or one person whom you lay most of the blame after all of this analysis. That, that's going to be in the eyes of my fellow citizens. I'm not in the business of apportioning culpability. I think that there's enough to go around, just like there's enough um, urgency and ingenuity and valor. Um, that, that really is my takeaway. And maybe it's because I have talked to the families of the four, uh, some of the families of the four in the last couple of days. Um, but when you do what I used to do for a living, you ask the families, what is it that you would like to see done? And I am at peace uh, that we did exactly for the families what we said we would do. It just took longer, but we did what we said we would do. I, I wanted to be able to tell Ty Wood's widow the truth about the military response. I wanted to be able to tell Sean Smith's mother the truth about the security leading up to it. Um, and I am at peace that we have more information than the other committees had. And we could have had more had we had just a tiny bit of cooperation from the other side. Yes. Along those lines, in a way, put aside the attack itself and what happened that particular night. Have you been able to, in some way, in some abstract way, I guess, get into Ambassador Stevens' mind regarding the U.S. presence in Libya, how he wanted that consulate and, and the facilities there in Benghazi, uh, how much he wanted the American presence to not appear militarized. Well, let, let, let's be very clear about something. Uh, Chris Stevens loved the people of Libya, and in particular, he loved the people of Benghazi. And the heroism he showed going in as the envoy and what he had to deal with as the envoy well before he was ever the ambassador. Uh, is a level of valor and heroism and commitment to this country that if you don't read the report for any other reason, read it to see what Chris Stevens had to endure in 2011. Now, you asked me, did we have an insight to his to his mindset? Yeah, he got there on, on September the 10th. He started meeting with intelligence officials about the state of security in Libya, and he began to postpone his subsequent meetings because what he was hearing. He knew it wasn't great. He had no idea how bad it was. So he began to postpone the next meeting is ready. The next meeting is ready. And here's our ambassador saying, I'm not through getting my debriefing yet. 
And then he moves the off-campus uh, meetings and engagements on campus. And then you see his, his diary entry. You see his diary entry on September the 11th? Read his diary entry. Read the email that he, that, that, that he sent to the British diplomat. No, we know exactly what was on Chris Stevens' mind. Benghazi had deteriorated in a way that he did not even expect, and security what was, was what was on his mind. But he wanted the appearance that the United States president there was not solidified by... I think he wanted to stay alive more than anything else. With all due respect, I think he wanted to stay alive. And if that means a slightly higher footprint, then there need to be uh, experts or supervisors in your life that say, we appreciate your valor but we're going to give you the security that you asked for originally. Yes. Um, so people have kind of asked a version of this question in different ways. but, but You must not like my answer. <laughs> Americans have viewed these events and all of these investigations through certain lenses, and they're probably going to continue after today, despite your pleas that they read 800 pages of a report. Mm -hmm. um, there are bumper stickers and T-shirts all over this country that say, Hillary Clinton lied, people died. Maybe Mr. Barpeo would answer this too. Is that true? Uh, you don't see that T-shirt on me, and you've never seen that bumper sticker on any of my vehicles, and you've never heard me comment on that. What? What? Have you read it? Well, I'm asking you. Well, well, I'm asking you to read it. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you to read it. I, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you what to be on the lookout for. I'm going to tell you there's new information. And it fundamentally changes the way I view what happened before, during, and after. But, but I, I, who was it, Ben Rhodes, that said reporters literally know nothing? Was that right? Is that what Ben Rhodes said? I don't believe that. I actually trust you to read the report for yourself and draw your own conclusion. You're going to write your report. Um, I'm, I'm not going to assign. I, uh, that, that, that's a word you couldn't use in a courtroom. Um, I know this. Um, I want you to contrast the information and the evidence that was available on the evening of September the 11th. Look at the full body of evidence that was available. And then look at what was said. And then you draw your own conclusion of whether or not you made the best use of the evidence and the information that was available. Um, it is one thing to say the evidence didn't exist. It existed. We found them. We found the DS agents. We found the GRS agents. Uh, their conversations ongoing throughout the night. He, she actually talked to Greg Hicks. So that argument actually both uh, works both ways. It, it, if there's a failure of information, she was fairly definitive in certain statements she made to other people privately. There was no ambiguity. It wasn't like, you know, I can't answer that question, uh, Mr. Egyptian political leader. Uh, we don't know. She was pretty definitive. Um, it was just in the public statements to us that there was um, less definitiveness. So you're, you're going to have to decide that for yourself. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You said my world on even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening.